Welcome to Inside Parliament. It's our weekly catch-up about the political stories we've been covering on One News. We're coming to you from the legendary TVNZ Beehive studio. I'm Jessica Much Mackay. And I'm Mikey Sherman. Let's start off with our pits and our peaks of the week. Do you want, have you got a peak? I've got a peak. Okay. I've got a major peak, guys, and that is uh, that this week, just in the last couple of days around Parliament, we are seeing uh, the rise, the appearance of the Christmas trees. Um, so very exciting. Um, I love Christmas. I cannot wait. Obviously, it's not even December yet, um, but all of the parties getting into the spirit. We've seen Labour Christmas trees down in the Whips Hall. We've seen National Party Christmas trees. So I think the festive season is among us. On that, National has done all of the Christmas decorations in blue. And I just don't think it's just not a Christmas colour and I don't think that's acceptable. I think they should have been more unique this time, had a bit of the gold and the silver, maybe a touch of blue, but I just don't think it works. Yeah. It irks me going to the third floor and seeing everything in sparkling blue. Oh, bad move, guys, bad move. Yeah, I mean, you've got gold, you've got silver, pick another <laughs> colour, but blue's just not a Christmas colour. Um Important matters there. Um, I've actually only got two pits this week. Really? Um, yeah, yeah. Two pits. Shall I sh- roll you through them? Jamie Lee Ross not returning to Parliament um, this year. So that's a pit because I just think it's going to be fascinating to see the body language in the debating chamber when he comes back. But we're not going to get to see that treat until next year now. Um, he has announced that he, he won't be back. Um, the other pit as well is the national... Young Nats had their Christmas party last week and one of the, um, a girl made a complaint to police um, at one of the after parties after that. And I just think it's, it's, it's brave of her to come forward, but it's just another thing where you've got alcohol and political parties and it just not being managed properly. And I just think it's sad that you have these situations, it's there's power dynamics at play, there's people who, young people who are thinking about their future and not wanting to um, ruffle feathers. So I, I do think it was really brave of this 17-year-old to come forward. That story came out of uh, newsrooms. So, um, yeah, I just... <laughs> It, it just always makes you feel a bit flat when you hear those stories. And it obviously comes off the back of Labour's own troubles um, in that area as well, following their um, youth summer camp, um, which is still before the courts mm-hmm. at the moment um, with the young guy um, being charged there. So, you know, yeah, it does it does sort of raise concerns. And, and obviously we'll touch on this later, but it's sort of, um, it all sort of marries into maybe the spirit of things perhaps that we're seeing, um, which is not very, um, you know, it, it, it's a bit, it's a bit disappointing and that is in terms of obviously we're seeing that investigation by the Speaker um, into um, um, bullying um, yeah. in Parliament and that would probably be my pit. I mean it's a good thing that um, it is sort of being looked into but just the fact that it's having um, to be looked into is a pit for me. I think that sort of um, uh, is a slight perhaps, um, a, a blight perhaps on, on um, our political system there. I think it's, that's just one of the big stories that we've had this week. We're week one of the four-week sitting program at the moment, and uh, we were told it was going to be busy. It certainly has felt that this week. Um, but one of the stories that Mikey did earlier this week was on drugs, so have a look at that. With record drug shipments hitting New Zealand's borders, the interception effort is ramping up on international cartels. We're seeing unprecedented amounts of narcotics being sent to New Zealand. I think we're having some success uh, in disrupting that. We can see that we're getting significant success by working with our partners overseas. 
One news can reveal a major shift in strategy from the big players. After years of southern China being the number one source of pea smuggled into New Zealand, Customs says it hasn't intercepted any methamphetamine from China in 12 months. It's likely there's been a displacement effect uh, in that those narcotics made in China have kind of been smuggled through to New Zealand through a different way. Surprising New Zealand officials after two years of low profile, shipments from the Americas are now registering off the scale. Customs says the total harm of drugs intercepted from North America was worth $23 million last year. But already this year, in the eight months to August, that number has more than quadrupled to $114 million. And in South and Central America, the numbers have gone up a whopping 600 from just over 11 million in 2017 to more than 80 million this year. It's thought China has been trying to use a different door. You know, we play a game of cat and mouse with our, um, with our adversaries, so I think we sort of block some channels and then they look to push it through some others. If Asia becomes too hot, then they can source methamphetamine from America. Since 2014, New Zealand has posted top-level investigators in key drug source regions, one to China's southern capital city, Guangzhou, known as the South China Project, another to Hong Kong and Washington, D.C. Our work in the U.S. has seen us disrupt or prevent around $45, 46000000 million worth of, of drugs arriving in New Zealand. So uh, you can see there's a real effect. In response to the major increase in drugs from the Americas, Customs will establish a new post in Los Angeles early next year. While New Zealand is a small market, Customs says it's the high price users will pay which makes this country a prime target. So this is something that, you know, sort of um, piqued my interest when I was just looking over um, a few sort of budget documents and, and comments around there. And I sort of um, noticed that um, there was the, the budget bid around this sort of um, international placing of um, sort of officers and, and investigators to sort of help um, curve that inflow of drugs into New Zealand. So I put in an OIA request and sort of got that sort of information back. It was really interesting um, to hear from um, Customs on the fact that, yeah, um, what was previously our sort of largest supply of pea, southern China, um, now using a different door perhaps um, coming through the Americas. And it was evident when you sort of um, watch that story, um, uh, when you see the numbers um, coming from the Americas, obviously we've seen a huge rise just um, in the last year, between 400 and 600% um, in terms of the drugs that we're getting in now from the Americas. So that's a huge number, that's a huge jump. Um, and for customs to basically be saying, hey, we think... Um, it's coming from China um, and that they're just playing cat and mouse with us. I think that's huge as well. So hugely fascinating. I thought it was very interesting. Um, and yeah, we'll yeah, try and follow it up um, some point down the track. And what will be interesting is to see it over time because like you said, if you, it's kind of like the whack-a-mole. If you put it down here, it pops up over <laughs> here somewhere. And it'll be interesting to see if it switches back at some point as well. So if we now switch our attention to the Americas, whether um, Guangzhou over time then becomes that hub again. And it, like one of the Grabes said in your story, they're constantly playing catch up with these guys. Um, and just, yeah, interesting, because I think for a lot of us, when we think of where the drugs, drugs are coming from, it, it usually is that the China, Those Asia, Asian syndicates yeah. and that sort of thing. So no, really interesting to yeah. see. 
And um, so all of these postings, um, the funding for these postings um, internationally come from the proceeds of crime. Um, So basically um, any of the assets or the cash um, seized um, from those sort of drug syndicates here um, uh, that were sort of procured um, under sort of illegal or um, unlawful activity, um, all of that sort of funding, part of that funding can go to things like this. So um, that's quite, you know, interesting to see where that money sort of goes and what's happening there. Um, And just one other thing to note in terms of that, um, you know, it's just we sort of often see in our communities the effect that methamphetamine in particular has um, on people, on vulnerable people. And so it's it's important to note where um, this stuff is coming from, where the, where the huge um, bulk, um, even of the ingredient ephedrine, um, where it's all coming from. And, and so this sort of sheds a light on that. One of the other big stories we looked at this week was this review launched by Trevor Mallard looking at bullying and harassment here at Parliament. So here's my story on that. Jamie Lee Ross was accused of bullying and harassing multiple women. And Mika Faitari was stripped of her ministerial portfolio after allegations she bruised a staff member. Add to that revelations of inappropriate behaviour at law firms and the Speaker's decided Parliament needs investigating. Bullying and harassment, including sexual harassment, is unacceptable uh, in any workplace. Um, we are setting up a review to establish uh, whether it has occurred, the nature and the extent. It'll look at complaints made after the 2014 election. I would expect, as with any workplace culture, particularly one that's 24-7, that's stressful, um, that includes people who are in a bit of a bubble, and that includes power imbalances that will find behaviours that are less than acceptable. So we put that to MPs. It is high pressure, there's long hours, there's no excuse though uh, for that to result in poor behaviour. Like actually a lot of workplaces that there is a culture of bullying uh, here in Parliament. It's a bit like a boarding school or something, we hear long hours, a lot of people under pressure. Um, None of that makes for any excuses though. So you think some MPs let power go to their heads? Yeah, there's no question about that, and you know, it can be intoxicating. The only person that's been seriously bullied around this place for a long time is one Winston Peters by people like you. Case in point, Parliament is unique and combative. But the investigator says bullying is defined by repeated, intentional, inappropriate behaviour. It's not the odd loose joke or robust political debate. That's part of a healthy democracy. This review won't look at specific cases. It'll comment on Parliament more broadly. But it could lead to complaints with police or HR if people choose to do that separately. The Speaker has promised anyone can give information to this review anonymously. An inquiry into Westminster last month revealed sexual harassment, bullying and intimidation, mainly towards women. Our investigation comes with a $200,000 price tag and is due back in April. So I think what's really interesting there is you do get a sense of what a unique place Parliament is to work. For people who haven't been here before, it's set up that if you don't want to leave and go and get fresh air, you don't need to. There's a gym, there's a pool, there's um, restaurants, there's a cafe. And it's designed, uh, this is a 24-hour seven-day-a-week place. So a lot of the staff here are high-pressure, high-stakes, big egos, um, discrepancies between your minister and your staff and all of these kind of things. And perhaps similar to law firms, you see that kind of pressure cooker environment and that creates the perfect storm for bullying and harassment. Now, as 
a lot of the politicians pointed out there, it's not an excuse for it. But you can see how um, that happens. And, and one of the other points that I thought was really interesting that Trevor Mallard made was the a lot of MPs come into Parliament and they haven't ever managed people before. So they may have had expertise in this area or expertise in that area, but they've never managed staff. Suddenly they come in, even as a backbench MP, and they've got their staff to take care of and, and take into account when they become a minister. They've got press secretaries. So it just... Not having that managerial experience is interesting and maybe something they'll need to address. Yeah, and Tracy Martin from New Zealand First, she said that exact same thing uh, when we spoke to her about this. She she confessed that you know when she came into Parliament, she didn't really have that experience, and she said that she would have liked to um, you know have have had a, f- a few tips perhaps or a little bit of training in terms of that um, whole management of staff, and it is crucial. I think you know. When we look at this issue, you, you you can perhaps see it in two ways. I mean, on one hand, you know, you want people, anyone, MPs or staff, um, uh, who want to come into government, who want to come into parliament because they're interested in, in the mechanics of government or in politics in general, you want them to be able to come in um, and be in an environment that isn't toxic. Um, but then on the other hand, you do need that these people who are coming in here to understand um, that this environment is, as you say, a high pressure environment. You know, there's a lot at stake here for parties, for individuals. Um, And so, you know, you want them to come in um, freely, um, but you also want to expect them to come in with their eyes wide open into what exactly they're coming into. And and that is that sort of top level uh, environment, high pressure. And the other layer to all of that is the fact that there's a lot of loyalty to the party as well. And so if you come in, say, um, as a as a policy person for um, one of the ministers or a press secretary for one of the ministers, you may be quite loyal to the party. If something happens, you're not wanting to rock the boat too much because you, you're wanting to hold the minister to account, but you're obviously not wanting to be damaging to the prime minister or damaging to the minister and, and that big party group. So there's all of these things that perhaps are unique and different from, a, from an office building or something like that. So it's going to be really interesting to see how this plays out. And they've been very adamant to say, look, this is all anonymous and everyone can take part, even journalists if we if we want to, um, and take part and, and build a picture about the culture here. Um, but I guess the flip side of it is it's not a normal environment. We perhaps don't have, you know, there's a, there's a bit of um, combat and a bit of yelling and a bit of, I guess, the way that people act in here perhaps is a little bit different Shall I, I say it's lower standards perhaps here than the outside <laughs> world? I don't know. But it's just such a unique environment. So it'll be, what will be really interesting is to see how um, Debbie Francis, the investigator, separates all of that out. And, and it's going to be high level. It's not going to be specific cases, but just to see how she handles all of that. And I think, I think it'll be interesting. Also to note perhaps in this um, area is that staff who come in and work for MPs in their offices, they aren't actually employed by those MPs, they're actually employed by parliamentary service. Um, And it was interesting to note that David Seymour, um, 
suggested perhaps that that needed to change. He was saying perhaps if these staff members were employed by the MP, then the MP would um, feel more responsibility and have more onus on them um, to take greater care perhaps of those staff members um, because what he says is it's too easy um, for staff members to then be turfed out if they're no longer needed or um, you know they're not getting on with the MP. It is a yeah, bit tricky but though, it is isn't hard it? Because, yeah, I mean all staff here are are employed at the discretion of the minister. So if you're not getting on with the minister, you can go. And that's just the reality of it. And and probably that's how it has to work, really. And I mean in that kind of environment. But you're right, it raises an interesting point that Yeah, because you wouldn't what you wouldn't want is for um MPs and ministers to be wasting all of their, not wasting all of their time, but consumed with staff issues, PG, you know, that they're mm. having to deal one-on-one with those issues when actually they need to be focused on other things like policy and, and, and the job that they're here to do as well. And it is the first time that that um, we've ever seen a review like that here. Um, the UK has obviously done it, but from one first to another first that was perhaps rather more significant, um, and that was the um, <laughs> vote for women, of course. Um, the look back track today is marking 100 years, and that's on the cusp of us marking 125 years now. So have a look at this track from 1993. Dawn, and hundreds retrace the path of Canterbury's pioneer women, the women who fought so their daughters could have the vote. We were worthy of the vote. The Women's Suffrage Service in Christchurch Cathedral. Generations of women activists and their daughters stand shoulder to shoulder. Everything that we have achieved in the last hundred years, we've had to fight for. It wasn't only the vote that had to be fought for. But during the service, Pākehā women had to read a confession, saying they had sinned against Māori women because they were more privileged. I didn't write that. uh confession and I, I wouldn't like to be associated with that because I feel that there are many Pākehā women that have just as, that have had just as much injustice perhaps as, as Māori, Māori women. Bad weather in places like Gisborne didn't stop hundreds turning out to march the streets. And from today, Parliament's foyer will have a reminder of who won women the vote. Christchurch remembered its famous daughter, as did the nation, with its first memorial to Kate Shepherd. She would surely be grieved that there are women today who are still the victims of homelessness, poverty and violence. As we go marching, marching in the beauty of the day. So nice to see that track there. Another big thing for us this week has been the immigration report that the Minister has got back, so have a look at my track on that. Carol Shrewbrick is in jail for importing drugs until 2022. Once released, he'll be gone, back to the Czech Republic. I've therefore determined that Mr Shrewbrick is now liable for deportation. That's a U-turn from the Minister. Ian Lees Galloway is defending himself, saying he got new Interpol information that Carol Shrewbrick travelled to the Czech Republic to stand trial. 
despite claims his life was in danger from corrupt police and because he witnessed a murder. Clearly any suggestion that Mr Shubrick had returned to the Czech Republic would have severely undermined his claims. But this information was available on Google. A Google search isn't enough. However, the minister says because it related to a failed court case, it was ruled irrelevant. Ministers cannot go charging around, googling irrelevant information, hearsay and unsubstantiated claims. An official came to brief the minister on the 400-page case file, but the minister only read the 12-page summary. He made a quick decision, he got it wrong, and now they're trying to cover up. Well, he's shown he hasn't got the judgement to be a minister, he should go. Information obtained under the Official Information Act shows that when the minister made his initial decision, he knew Mr Shrewbrick had imported ecstasy and that he'd got New Zealand residency using a fake name. But says he was swayed by things like a heartfelt letter from Mr Shrewbrick's wife and the fact a judge thought his life would be in danger if he returned to the Czech Republic. This was always a bad guy who shouldn't be in New Zealand. The minister admits it's damaging. I spoke to the Prime Minister last night to explain the circumstances and convey my apology. She has accepted my apology. So what about resigning? No. He's acknowledged that whilst he asked questions, uh, he could have and should have asked more questions. I think now, obviously, um, he's uh, issued uh, a decision uh, and now it's up to us to make sure that we improve the way things are done in the future. The Minister announcing changes on the way. He's launched a review of the process. This has been a long, drawn-out process for the Minister, and this kind of thing is the worst kind of story because it raises questions about whether he was across all the details, whether he was rushed to make his decision, whether he was sloppy. And I just think that for the for a Minister, for those kinds of things to be questioned, that's never what you want. And then we've got this little solution of not blaming the Minister, not blaming the officials, blaming the process. So that's ah, where they've the landed process. on this. <laughs> ah, the pro- Nobody in the process cannot talk back. So now we will go and investigate the process with yet another review and that will be back in March and that will find that they need to look at different things. But it just, I mean, it's a, it was a U-turn from the Minister, plain and simple. Um, never where you want to be for Ian Lees Galloway, but it was always going to be the outcome. As soon as the media started reporting that um, Carol Shrewbrick had gone back to the Czech Republic um, to face court. You kind of think, ah, but didn't you just say that you were going to be in a world of trouble if you went back? So as soon as that came out, um, I think he was going to have to change his mind. Yeah, and I, I, um, I mean, the immigration portfolio is always tricky, and I think we saw that uh, with Shane Jones. Even yeah. um, he had his own troubles with the immigration portfolio um, with Mr. Liu. Um, yeah. So you know, it is a tricky portfolio. But that is why um, those responsible ministers in that portfolio need to take extra care. Um, and and I was just thinking about this, and this, you know, just just musing here, but. Um, when it does come to these, I was thinking, why is it sometimes um, such a tricky portfolio? And I was thinking perhaps it's because um, in terms of the public, you know, um, Joe Down and Fielding or, or whatever, um, wouldn't have as much care for someone who was not perhaps a, a citizen or sort of native citizen of New Zealand um, as they as they would for, for say, Mr Liu or um, Carol Shrewbrick. I mean, what responsibility perhaps some might think is it on the New Zealand taxpayer um, to really give a damn, basically, about some guy who's come in from overseas, he wants residency and then he breaks the law, 
send them back. You know what I mean? I think people would take that sort of an attitude. Um, and so I think that's why uh, ministers need to be more tricky because um, the public perhaps isn't as forgiving when it comes to non, you know, n- non-native residents. And I think that's, what it, that's why that job is, is a little bit of a hospital pass um, because you've got to balance up so many things and that's what you're trying you're you're like a judge in that sense that you're having to weigh up this and weigh up this and and make the decision I think with all of that with all of that information what looks bad is that Immigration New Zealand prepared this 400 page report right handed over to the minister now the official arrives at the meeting with the minister um, the minister reads the 12 page summary and then asks the official some questions. But with a complex case like this, and it has, you know, alert, 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 written all over it. You know what I mean? It's it's going to be a tough one. Ian Lees Galloway himself even said it was one of the tough decisions he had to make as minister. Would you not read the 400-page report? You know what <laughs> I mean? It's like funny I just... if, he's, if he says it's one of the tough decisions he had to make as a minister, but I only read the 12-page summary. Yeah. I mean, that Do just you know doesn't, I mean? Like, that doesn't add up. And I wonder if that's one of those things that when Anne Lees Galloway is lying awake at night thinking, I should have read the whole... Re-. You know, just even for the asset, even if it hadn't changed his mind, I just wonder how much he's kicking himself for not have reading the, read the report. And his argument when we talked to him in the press conference was, yesterday was like, look, I'm trying to be, I'm having to make these decisions, I'm having to do it fast, I'm not wanting to slow down the process. Um, you know, the officials presented me with the information. But at the end of the day, the buck stops with the minister. And it doesn't matter what the other pressures are. You've got to, you've got to take, you're the one who has to front the press conference um, and answer all of our questions. He's the one that um, needs to be like, no, nah, hang on a second, I'm just going to take 24 hours and I'm going to do it. So I don't know. I just think it's it's one of those stories that um, Ian Lees Galloway would like to put a lid on the box and And let that away. be a learning to all of the new ministers. Yeah, yeah there might be a little bit more reading going on mm. um, from now on. Um, Huawei also came up yesterday for us as well. Really interesting development there. Do you want to talk yeah, a bit more so, about that? Yeah, um, so basically Spark New Zealand um, wanting to get into the um, area of 5G and they were wanting to use Huawei um, in order to do that. But um, when it comes to sort of big decisions like that around our telecommunications networks, um, the GCSB, one of our top spy agencies here in New Zealand, um, has to test and approve um, those things. And basically they said, no, there is too much of um, a perceived risk in going with Huawei. Um, um, and so obviously you sort of put two and two to get put one and one together, put two and two together, and you get um, perhaps those concerns do lie around um, that perceived spying and hacking of our intelligence uh, of our um, telecommunication networks. And that's what's so interesting with this decision is there's this decision and then all of this around it. So it comes in the context of um, the prime minister spending a lot of time with the debt with the Vice President of the United States, um, Mike Pence, at, at APEC in Papua New Guinea and, and in ASEAN and Singapore as well. It comes um, amid us not getting the carpet rolled out for us to go to Beijing to go and visit China. So there's all of this geopolitics at play here. And, and like you made the point last night, issuing that directive, the US said, um, through... Um, the Wall Street Journal. Yeah, saying that, look, you you guys need to fall in line and New Zealand... 
another one to follow suit. And Australia's done that as well, and that has um, affected their relationship with China um, in some way. And so the question now is what sort of impact our decision will have on our relationship with China. Um, and, and it is a significant relationship. They're our biggest trading partner. Um, and so, you know, watch that space. Yeah, it just feels as though we've had... Big story, big story, big story. We also had the um, immunisation stuff this week. That was really big in Northland getting um, all of these vaccines as well. So I feel like um, we've had been whacked with a few big stories this week and still three more weeks to go. Three more weeks to go. It's going to be good. It will be good. So thank you very much for being with us for Inside Parliament, our weekly catch-up about the political stories we've been covering on One News. We're on Facebook, Twitter and on Instagram. It's available every Thursday evening on the One News Facebook page and check us out on your favourite podcasting app.